0: This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. If you read, listen, or watch the news today, it's impossible to avoid public opinion polls. They are literally everywhere. The president's approval rating, what people think about impeachment, even what the best fast food restaurant is. But as omnipresent as opinion surveys are, a lot of the math and science that goes into them is relatively unknown to many people. There are also a lot of questions about how polls work, and how they should work. Why do polls, for instance, include more Democrats than Republicans? Do political independents actually exist? These are some of the many questions people have. There are also a lot of misunderstandings about public opinion surveys. Many people think that they got the 2016 presidential election wrong. But that's not quite true. In fact, the national polls did a pretty good job of predicting what the vote would be. But some of the state polls did get it wrong, and the Constitution awards the presidency to the candidate with most Electoral College votes, not the popular vote. To get to the bottom of these issues, I wanted to get in touch with Courtney Kennedy, the Director of Survey Research of the Pew Research Center. In our conversation, Kennedy talks at length about the profusion of survey research companies and the rise of polling aggregation operations like those at 538. Real Clear Politics, and The New York Times. While she is skeptical about some pollsters' practices, she also wonders whether it makes sense to lump low-quality polls with those from organizations that have higher standards. She also warns that trying to create election forecasts that assign a candidate's percentage chance of winning based on polls may actually suppress voter turnout. Kennedy and I also discuss how polling operations have had to change how they conduct research, In light of the rise of spam phone calls, one surprising change that the Pew Research Center has made is to go old school by recruiting poll respondents via letters in their mailboxes. There's a lot in this interview, so grab a cup of coffee and get ready for a real numbers session. You had a great post the other day on the Fact Tank blog at the Pew Research Center discussing partisanship in polling. So why don't we just start off with the headline on your piece which is that why do public opinion polls not include the same sample size of democrats and republicans.
1: Right so we we wrote that piece because this question comes up reliably several times during every election cycle and it's it's not uncommon for a poll to come out and folks who don't like the findings will will dig into okay well what was the share of republicans versus democrats in that poll and 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 does that line up with their expectations and and if not then they try to sort of invalidate the poll to to criticize it on on the basis on the grounds that it didn't have the right ratio or that it didn't have exactly the same number of democrats and republicans and so we we wrote this piece to try to answer that question right and so the explanation is what polls are designed to do is to reflect the American public as if, you know, you sort of held up a mirror to the American public. You actually wouldn't see the exact same number of Democrats and Republicans. And so that's why we don't have the exact same number in polls. And there is lots of evidence, different kinds of evidence from registration records to voting patterns to federally conducted surveys, all pointing to several decades where we've had more people in in the public who identify with the Democratic Party than with the, uh, the Re- Republican Party. Now, the key thing is that's when you're looking at all adults in the United States, which is the broadest possible lens. And I, I think one thing that trips people up is that if you change the discussion to focus on registered voters or even more narrowly on Likely voters, that balance of Democrats versus Republicans is is going to change. and so it, it's important to to keep that in mind and 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 just know that it's not the case that there's sort of some golden balance um, that every poll should have in terms of how many Republicans versus Democrats
0: yeah well why don't we why don't we talk a little bit about how the overall trends have been relatively stable, but also there is still some people are willing to switch what they identify as
1: yeah that's right, so in the aggregate so those shares are are pretty stable, and even at the individual level, there's a lot of research showing that whether someone identifies as a republican or a democrat is is generally pretty stable over time now again, people can change their minds on that but it's not terribly common it doesn't happen with with great frequency and so trends in in partisanship are are relatively stable for sure
0: mhm all right well now in terms of finding out what that balance should be you guys are using cross comparing with some other surveys, which have typically tend to have larger sample sizes. Why don't you talk a little bit about those other surveys and how many people they're polling and how often they're getting those numbers?
1: Sure. So two data sources that we drew on in our analysis are not what I would describe as, as like a public opinion poll, but rather they're quite resource-intensive, long-time period, major studies that are funded by the federal government Uh, They're not conducted by by pollsters. They're conducted more by academics and and federal survey contractors. And they track demographics. They track attitudes back into the 1970s in one case or back to the 1950s in the other case. And they're done both in person. So we're not talking about phone polls. We're not talking about online polls. We're talking about the, the absolute gold standard, best possible methodology for trying to get an accurate read of um, how the public looks on something. And so the General Social Survey, which is done out of the University of Chicago, and the American National Election Survey, which has has been conducted depending on the year by different firms, each of those is conducted when they do it with about, I want to say, 2,000, 2,500 interviews, it might have changed a little bit over time. But every time that they go into the field and conduct one of those surveys, it, it does have a reasonably large, robust sample size. And their great value is they've been doing it the same way using this very rigorous methodology for decades. And what we show is the trends in partitions are relatively stable over time.
0: Mm-hmm. I guess one of the trends, though, the other larger trends is that partisan identification has been on the decline in recent years.
1: Yes, that's correct. So it's it's very frequent in polls that we ask people whether they identify more as a Democrat versus a Republican. And a lot of the public kind of rejects that. You know, they don't like either party. And so they say that, that they don't identify um, with either, that they're more of an independent. And the share of the public that gives that response is absolutely increased over time. But we also will then ask a follow-up question. If if someone doesn't identify with that first question, we say, well, which party do you lean more towards? And most people will actually answer that second question. And what we find is that people who, on the follow-up, say that they lean toward, more towards, say, the Republican Party, actually express views that are they are quite similar to people who say the Republicans on the first ask. And so analytically, we tend to combine those two groups of Republicans and, and lean Republicans and the same thing on the Democratic side. So the share of independence has risen, but a lot of those independents actually do lean towards a party if you sort of push them and it's useful to analyze it that way.
0: Mm -hmm. What percent of the population would you say is the sort of true independent?
1: I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's more on the order of like 10 percent, I would say, actually, that that really in that second question don't
0: lean. Mm -hmm. Among that 10 percent roughly or or whatever percentage it is of of the true independents, do they tend to be people who are more informed than partisans or less informed in terms of answering questions um, correctly of political knowledge?
1: Well, in general, less, right? So people who are strong partisans on both sides of of the political spectrum tend to have higher levels of engagement in politics and higher levels of knowledge about politics. And so those folks that you ask them and you ask them again, they still don't identify on average, tend to have lower levels. It doesn't mean all independents have have low levels of of knowledge and engagement, but the the averages, that is how that bears out.
0: The idea, of course, of self-assessment is something that has been long an issue within sociology and, and public opinion surveys. That is to say, how accurate are people at assessing their own ideology? Is that something that you've looked at in your own research?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. There is, as you pointed to, mounting evidence with with problems around self-described ideology. So, I mean, one piece of that is the question itself. So we talked about asking people about which political party they tend to identify with. A separate question that's often asked in, in public polls is on this issue of ideology, and it asks people about liberal versus conservative. And I I, I think... Don Kinder, the political scientist, has written an entire book, kind of out, laying out. Here's all the flaws with that measurement, and part of it is those terms. You know, the, the term liberal has obviously taken on a certain meaning in, in today's society, and, and conservative as well. And so there's there's measurement error associated with that. The researcher might have one definition in mind of conservative, but the, a general member of the public taking a survey might interpret that to mean something different. And so answers to that ideology question don't necessarily map onto or make a whole lot of sense always with how people actually talk about their partisanship or talk about their views on political policies. And so we tend to use partisanship as a more reliable, more accurate descriptor of where people are politically than than ideology.
0: Yeah, and there's been some research that shows that a pretty sizable number of people who identify as Democrats or be could be described as such ha- have views that they characterize as conservative. And that presents kind of an interesting conundrum for people who are advocates on either side because conservative activists or conservative Republican activists sometimes think that they can lump those people in with their, their ideas, but it, it doesn't quite work that way.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yep, absolutely.
0: All right. Well, so let's talk a little bit about waiting. That is something that has also been somewhat controversial within the polling business and at the same time as the way that surveys have to be conducted nowadays with the large non-response rates. Um, waiting is something that has to be done a little bit more, whether you like it or not.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, no, it, it it really is. The burden is on the pollster to, to take the data and statistically adjust it using the best information available to make it as representative as possible. And so that, that does involve what would you weighting or some people might describe it as modeling, modeling the population you're trying to represent with your poll through weighting. I've been in the field 20 years or so. It's really always been the case that you should weight your data. But to your point, the the need to do so is is only increasing over time due to non-response and challenges of of polling online and, and a whole array of factors.
0: Yeah. In terms of how a sample is going to be modeled to correspond with the public, do you have you guys thought about publishing your methods or your equations for how that weighting is conducted?
1: So we do publish what we hope to be, what, what is intended to be a fulsome description of all the relevant details. So you're right, there's not formulas, but as a general practice, we try not to put formulas in anything that we publish just because our, our view is if, if you put a formula in, it, it tends to sort of scare people off or be a barrier. And so what we try to do is just describe in, in as plain a language as possible what the math is doing. And our weighting procedure is a little bit different for, for doing a phone poll versus online. But um, in both cases, I would say there's there's really two main steps. The first step is called base weighting which is um where you you as a pollster you deal with the fact that maybe not everybody in your sample had the same chance of being selected and a real simple example is someone let's say you live in a household where there happened to be four other adults well we're not going to interview all four of you we're just going to interview one but if you live in a household like that you had you know only a one in four chance of being selected versus someone who lives alone and, you know, if we reached you, you had 100% chance. So the base weighting addresses that piece, that, that probability of being selected for the poll. But the even more important stage comes later, and that's, in our poll, it's it's raking, right? It's this post-stratification, which is where you align your sample with the population on important dimensions like age, education, geography, race, ethnicity, gender, Et cetera, et cetera. And so that's that raking is the opportunity for the pollster to overcome imbalances that 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 we all get. it's It's pretty well documented that polls are more likely to have people who are Caucasian, often more likely to have older adults, college graduates. they're just they're just more likely to take surveys than other folks. But raking the raking stage is our opportunity to try to address that by making all of those, putting all of those subgroups proportional to how they should be in terms of the overall population.
0: Yeah. What What is your general hierarchy in terms of for weighting what counts in your own research when you're doing a poll? How do you prioritize this demographic characteristic equals what percent, like sort of a, a ranking of that?
1: Well, the way that raking works is that essentially it iterates, and so it aligns your poll on all of those dimensions more or less simultaneously. The process is is not one in which education is is made more important than race. It's designed to balance your sample on all of those dimensions at the same time, basically, which is sort of the the, the beauty of the math uh, with that process.
0: Yeah, there has been some discussion within the public opinion industry about educational attainment as a as a weighting factor and some people had argued that certain surveys in the 2016 election may have been erroneous because education was not given as much of a value or, or people didn't factor it in as much
1: that's absolutely the case and i'm Happy to be associated with that since I, I worked on a, a committee that, that, that arrived at that that finding. Yeah, it was the case that especially the state polls in 2016 did not adjust for the fact that they had too many college graduates. Many of them didn't even ask the question. So I think it's not the only reason that, that there were some issues in 2016, but it's among, I would say, the most important and most fixable reasons. And so from my standpoint, the implication is that if you're gonna do a poll, especially a poll about politics, it's it's absolutely critical that education is included among those set of uh, weighting variables because there's it's, there's just so much, it's a very robust pattern that we see that folks with college graduate levels of education and, and higher, they're just more likely to take surveys. And in 2016, if you had too many college graduates, that was quite correlated, especially in the upper Midwest, it was quite correlated with vote for Hillary Clinton. And so if you have too many college graduates, you had too many Clinton voters, and you had polls that were off by six, seven points as a result of that. So it is avoidable. Now, some pollsters will say, will take issue with the the means of of going about that fix. But as far as I can tell, there's, there's enough data that we have, whether it's from a devoting supplement to the current population study or other sources, there's enough guidance that we have as to what is a reasonable education distribution for a particular state or nationally. And we can use that to guide, you know, our our waiting practices.
0: Okay. I guess one of the other things that changed over at the Pew Research Center was that you guys decided not to do as much presidential race polling. Can you talk a little bit about that decision?
1: Sure. Yeah. And just to be clear on the timeline, that was a, a strategic institutional level decision that we, we rolled out, I want to say around September, October. But it was not it was absolutely not in reaction to Election Day. It was something that we had been thinking about, frankly, for quite a while and that we put in place in the run up to the 2016 election.
0: Okay. Well, can you talk a little bit about the decision? Why did you guys decide to do that?
1: Well, it has to do with some of the changes that have been occurring in in the polling field, frankly. And one of them is that as the barriers to, quote unquote, being a pollster have, have all but evaporated. One thing that's happened for the last 10, 20 years of polling is that the sheer number of public opinion pollsters has increased in a pretty dramatic way. And a lot of that's driven by technology that allows people to go out just a few thousand dollars and and quote-unquote do a poll, whether it's using interactive voice response, which is phone calls where there's an automated system and they're like, press one for this option and press two for that, right? So that's, that's very cheap and is one way to do a poll. There's also pretty inexpensive ways to do polling online these days. And, and the net result is that you've got a lot more pollsters, a lot more people putting out horse race numbers, and so the landscape of polling, in our view, has, has changed you know in a pretty meaningful way. And when we think about you know, the charitable dollars that that fuels us at the Pew Research Center, you know, we really began to question, well, what is the value of us going out and doing a poll? That's really kind of emphasizing the horse race and having reporters or aggregator just grab that horse race number and feed it into an aggregator with 20 other numbers of the same thing and and average it out. And what happens is all the attention is going to the folks in the media who are doing the aggregating and the value of all those inputs kind of gets devalued, in, if you will. So the, the more people who are out there doing the, the same sort of types of horse race polls, and the more focus there is on the aggregators, we just didn't feel like there was much benefit to the public or return on our investment from doing that type of polling. And we also have been thinking a lot about what is the value to society from predicting the outcome of an election before it happens. And, you know, I think in that respect, there was a lot to be said for our approach in 2016 because it, it, there was clearly a, a disjuncture between these models and the forecasts and what everybody thought was going to happen, and what actually did. And I think it's it's fair to question whether those forecasts about who was going to win were actually doing the public a service or or a disservice.
0: Mm-hmm. So, do you think in the aftermath of 2016, the overall aggregation of the popular vote, it was pretty close if you were to lump all the samples together. The popular vote roughly corresponded with that. But the public and maybe more especially Trump supporters seems to have lost some confidence in polling. Has that been a research question that you've looked at, at public confidence in polling and what it may have been affected by?
1: I absolutely think that's the case. You know, Everybody that I talk to in in the polling field definitely gets that feedback. And I don't know a single pollster that would dispute that idea that that 2016 hurts, you know, public confidence and trust in polling. I mean, absolutely. But to your point, it's it's frustrating because I think a lot of that is based on sort of a an incomplete picture, right? It's based on the fact that those predictions, that the Electoral College predicted one winner and national polls were actually accurate in terms of the popular vote, but because we don't elect a president with popular vote, we do with the electoral college, it was possible for national polls to actually be accurate and not point to the correct winner. And so I think, you know, the public understandably came away from the 2016 election with the feeling that polling is, is broken and no longer works and, and that type of thing. But the the factual record of, of national polls and in more rigorous polls is they actually did pretty well in 2016, right? If you're, if you're sort of judging them on what they were doing, which is measuring national sentiment, they pretty much got it dead on on average. And fast forward to the 2018 midterm polls did well again in 2018. And so while there's definitely this this sentiment out there that polling is broken. It's actually not true. There are a lot of kind of lower quality polls these days, no doubt. But public opinion polling as a methodology, when, when done by people who are doing it carefully, still works and absolutely still gives accurate information. And it, it is tough to square that with 2016, but that's what the, the record shows.
0: Mm -hmm. Has it been frustrating, though, that this idea of lumping things together and then assigning a percentage chance that so-and-so is going to win? I mean, what's your thought on that?
1: I have a lot of questions as to how that lands with the public and whether there's a net societal good to it. It's not at all clear to me that there is a net good to it. When I get into these conversations sometimes with colleagues, issues of, well, academic freedom – And well, from a from a technical scientific perspective, that might be a totally legitimate thing to do. And and sure, on some level, I agree with that. I think it's more important to consider how these things actually affect the public, how they affect how they affect how normal people are viewing the competitiveness of a campaign and how they're viewing whether they should go out and bother to vote. And it's frustrating because we actually need more research on those questions, and they're, they're critically important questions. But my read of, of the research that exists is that that type of information, telling people that a candidate is 99% likely good to, to win, is makes all the sense in the world that that would demotivate some people who, especially those who are not terribly into politics, it would demotivate them from voting.
0: Because they would think they didn't need to show up.
1: That's right. There was sort of a foregone conclusion. Yep.
0: Well, so do you think that the profusion of polls has 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 made public perception more or less accurate in terms of predictions? That's
1: hard to say. I mean, in in some respect, the more data points you have on something, the better. But I think that that is the, the counterweight to that is if the the quality of those individual inputs is not very high. Then it's it's not quite as valuable. And so I I don't I don't know if I could sort of mentally balance out what is it is it better to have 50 low quality polls or five high quality ones? I don't have a, a straight answer to that, but I, I think it's it's not necessarily uh, uh, obvious.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I think you're certainly 100% right in terms of that. A lot of these horse race polls they tend not to be issue focused and policy focused, and so. There's a lot of things that when people are, you know, they're not they're not understanding why a vote happened or what the public is interested in from a a policy output standpoint.
1: Yes, absolutely. And and from our perspective, the the real value of polls is not spitting out a horse race number, snapshot in time of, of who's ahead by three points, you know, kind of thing. But it's more. Giving people, you know, information about w- what concerns are on people's mind, how, you know, how is the public reacting to the candidates or um, policies that have been implemented? How is the public reacting to, you know, the uh, the economic situation where they live, uh, the, the education system in their community? Well, that kind of stuff to us is, is a much more important and, and valuable story to tell than the sort of snapshot in time of, of a horse race.
0: Mm -hmm. All right. Well, so now in terms of sort of public confidence in in polling and pollsters, um, is that is that a topic that you guys have done any surveys on or do you plan to if you haven't?
1: It's funny. I think if over the years, some people try. It's hard to do that and have the results mean anything because there's sort of this inherent profound non-response bias where the people who are like that you know 10% of the public or the 5 to 10% of the public that's still willing to do polls are going to have much more positive friendlier warmer attitudes about polling than though you know the 90% who won't participate in that research. So that's kind of been my criticism of, of efforts that have been made to study trust in, in polling. It's it's an inherently very uh tough thing to measure because of that dynamic.
0: Yeah. Well I mean, what do you think would be a a way to possibly attempt to study that?
1: Well, I, I don't know that there's a practical, obvious one. One thought that comes to mind is if somehow you could get space on one of those high response rate, very rigorous surveys that we talked about a few minutes ago, like the general social survey, they get they get a high response rate, right? Most people that they sample for that study say yes. And so the risk of, you know, having that sort of non-response bias is, is perhaps lower and and that type of survey, but yeah, it's it's tough, it's tough to know. And, and one other piece of evidence is, is just looking at response rate over time um, to surveys. And there's a lot of confounds with that, right? Because we have seen um, response rates decline just like in the last two years. But a lot of that is some of that could be a decline in trust of pollsters but uh, I think the more important factor there is probably the rise of telemarketing calls and sort of spam to people's cell phones and so it's a little bit hard to isolate that but um I'd say that there's there's some circumstantial evidence to support the idea that that trust in polling has has declined somewhat
0: Mm-hmm. And you guys have made some adjustments to going to rely less on, on phone interviews, uh, given declining response rates and shifting over to online panels. Can you talk a little bit about how, how you guys are making those panels and how many people are in them, how people are selected to answer specific questions?
1: Sure. That's right. We, we have almost completely switched over to doing interviewing online. And the, the way that we do it is we still recruit people offline. Because there's there's really no great way to draw a random sample from the entire population online. I mean, obviously, not, not everybody's online to begin with, but that that's just a very tricky proposition. So the way that we go about it now is that we sample, we do a national random sample of residential addresses, so the U.S. Postal Service actually makes available their master list of addresses that they deliver mail to, which is basically close to 100% of households. And so we contact people through the mail. You know, there's a letter. It's got a small incentive on it. it. says, you know, essentially, we're the Pew Research Center. We'd like to uh, you to participate in this research. Please go to this website, and here's your, your password. And, and and we enroll people that way. And f- if people don't have access to the internet, we actually provide it to them. We provide them with tablets and, and data plans, and so the, the virtue of that is that we start the process with great representative sample, where you know really everybody in the country had a chance of being selected. Now, obviously, only a small share are selected, but
0: now, now how many people are you guys? How many people do you guys send the postcards to?
1: Well, I mean, we've got 10,000 people in the panel right now. There's the number that get mailed out to is you like multiply that by 10 because not everybody responds. But it's interesting. We actually get a a higher response rate doing that approach than we're getting right now on the phone. On the phone, our response rates have been around 6% or so. When we do this recruitment through the mail, it's about double that. It's, it's more like 12%. is not 100, don't get me wrong, but it's, it's definitely moving in a better direction. And, and critically, it's not trending towards zero. So, so that's what it looks like for us. And you know, I, I, it's important, maybe your listeners know this, but most people don't, right? So if you think about online public polls, most of them aren't done the way I just described. The way that we do it, and the way that uh, is similar to how, like, the Associated Press does, LA Times, a few other entities. But the, the far more common way to do online polling is with some sort of convenience sample, with you know, what, what's called an opt-in panel, a, a river sample, some process where people are um, people are recruited online to take surveys they can often, you know, sign themselves up to for, to to be in the panel and to get points or rewards or whatever, and so it's a much different process and sometimes the result can be fine, but there's a lot more unknowns using convenience samples.
0: Uh-huh. And have you guys run any of those at all?
1: Thus far, it's it's basically only been to conduct research on the methodology to better understand the data quality trade-offs of doing it that way versus doing it, as I described, sort of offline through the mail. And we're still in the process of of doing that type of research because, uh, you know, there's obviously a lot of people, a lot of smart people in the field that that are using opt-in type approaches. And, you know, I I think it's important to acknowledge that, especially for like just top-line survey results, the differences are often really pretty negligible. You, You know, if you just are polling presidential approval or something like that, you can tend to see pretty similar results regardless of that recruitment approach. But if you dig deeper, sometimes we've we've seen some more important differences, whether it's subgroup estimates, tracking things over time, things like that. So we're, we're still in the mode of uh, really wanting to understand the data quality trade-offs.
0: Mhm. All right, well so you've got a, a 10,000 person panel and how how often do you use the entire panel and how often do you guys just decide to do a subset?
1: Well, at this point we mostly do subsets, but it's it's quite variable. When when we first created our panel, small enough that every time we did a survey with them, we just tried to interview everybody. But since we we grew this sample, the sample, excuse me, the panel to about 10,000 people, now we're at that level where it's kind of wasteful to do all 10,000. You don't really need that statistically. And so generally, we're we're subsampling, although there's times when we want to get a measurement on on everybody in the panel. Thinking ahead to the election, I know that like at the start of the the primary season, right? We're going to want to measure preferences for the whole panel, and probably around the time of the conventions, we'd want to do it again, and then maybe closer to election day. And there, there's things like that where we want to measure it for everybody, but for our day-to-day polling work, usually a, some sort of sub is sufficient.
0: Mm-hmm. Speaking of sub-samples, um, you, we talked a little bit about the idea of registered and likely voters. Can you talk a little bit about how you guys are? determining who is a likely voter? Because that's another area that there's some disagreement or different methods in the industry.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And it actually goes back to what I mentioned earlier, which was in the run-up to the 2016 general election, we laid out on our website to our audience our sort of new approach to, to handling these things. And there were probably two main components to that. One we talked about was a projection, right? Are you going to go into the field like the week before the election and put out a final number which is your your projection of how that vote is going to come out? And we've we've stepped away from doing that, and we also have have stepped away from doing likely voter modeling. We sometimes will ask questions that that might go into a someone's likely voter model, like we still want to measure Engagements. We still want to measure whether people are informed about the voting process and, and things like that. So we still measure some of the component questions, but we don't. We no longer do. We don't have plans to do that. That practice of building a likely voter model and putting out estimate for likely voters. That was just again kind of part of the policy pivot that that we did in 2016.
0: Do you think that it's it's difficult to decide who is a, a likely voter is that was did that factor in at all with the decide who is a likely voter with any sort of approximation mm-hmm. to reality
1: it, that was part of it. I wouldn't say that was like the the major reason, but that was definitely part of the consideration is the fact that on some level it is guesswork on the the behalf of the pollster trying to predict what is the electorate the voting electorate going to look like. And who in my sample is, is gonna fit that description and, and getting your sample to look like your conception of what this future thing is gonna be like. It it is it it does get pretty uncomfortable the the degree of modeling and, and decision making by the pollster that's required to do that. Now I, I would be clear, there's a lot of pollsters that do likely voter modeling and I I don't I honestly don't think that there's really anything wrong with that. And a lot of that information is, is very interesting. It's just, we got to a point at the Pew Research Center where we felt like it just wasn't a good fit for what we were trying to do and, and how we want our audience to, to to consume our work and what they we want them to get from it.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the other things about subgroups is that when it comes to the opinions of small racial groups or younger people who are not as likely to participate, do you think people are are too likely to draw inferences from polls on that? And are you guys going to make any efforts to increase the – because I know you guys do what maybe once a year something about it. This is what Asian Americans think of, of stuff, and this is what Hispanic Americans think of stuff. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sort of process of determining subgroup opinions.
1: Yeah, I I, I would broadly agree with with your observation there. It, it seems like in a lot of recent elections, there's been claims, some some of which are sort of fueled by poll numbers, that oh, this is this is the election when the under thirty crowd is going to turn out, and this is the election when the Hispanic vote is is going to really skyrocket. And as far as I can tell, those almost never pan out. And so I do think that one would be wise to not rush to, to that conclusion. Even if a poll might be suggesting that, uh, it, it, it can be illusory. And so we will be doing some research that, that kind of touches on this stuff. And, and the lens that, that we would look through is engagement, interest, in the campaign, the degree to which different subgroups are, are getting news about the campaign, how closely they're following that news, and we will be tracking things like tension to vote. And so, we will bring a lot of data to bear for those subgroups that will that will provide some information on this. But yeah, I think the premise of your 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 question, your your observation, is is definitely true, though.
0: Mm-hmm. There's a there's a seems to be a growing percentage of of Americans who are kind of opting out of, of political participation. Have you guys looked at that or and do you, or do you plan to look on it if you haven't? The sort of unlikely voters as as another pollster calls them.
1: Well, I mean there's I think that there's some evidence for that, but I think that frankly like the the 2018 midterm election would would challenge whether that's a robust pattern or or maybe not that was a historically pretty unusual pretty highly engaged election for a midterm and i don't know if if 2020 will follow suit it certainly could so i think we're at a moment where that pattern of of people not being engaged and and maybe turnout rates declining it 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 could be changing at least at this political moment
0: okay now in terms of the the idea of Deciding what the the right ratio for for all this is it it's it's not it's something that changes with when you're doing a, a um, raking of a sample or or weighting it. It's something that changes depending on who answered the survey.
1: So what we do is on our our online panel we look at a rolling average of party estimates actually from our phone polls. So in our phone polls we we have not waited to party. We just get what we get and, and we, we wait the data, but we wait the data on other demographics and we don't do partisanship. And so we report out those numbers. And what we've seen over time is yes, the party numbers move around a little bit from month to month. The the share that's Republican will move up or down a point or two. But usually it's usually it's pretty stable. And so for the last few years, we've used that to make sure that our online panel is, is, is balanced in looking reasonable in terms of political partisanship. So we use that that rolling average for online work.
0: Mm-hmm. And then in terms of various subgroups, have there been any partisan identification trends that, that you can speak to with like, let's say, people who do not have a college degree or people who are... Of particular religious groups or non-religious groups, have have there been any shifts in the, among those subgroups? Like, Asian American tendency to identify as, as Republican has declined, but yes. other things kind of shift around a little bit. Can you talk about some groups that you, that you can think of off the top of your head?
1: A little bit. I mean, education is is a big one in terms of people who identify as Republicans. That is getting older and increasingly white and non-college graduates. So that's definitely a trend that we've seen in our data. And as you said, the share of Asian Americans who identify as Republican has decreased over time. That group is moving more and more towards identifying with the Democratic Party. And I'd say the other big one is, is age with, it used to be back in the 80s. That the eighteen to thirty year old population was was kind of in the middle, quite in terms of being balanced between Republicans and Democrats. But over the last several decades, they have increasingly moved towards identifying with uh, with the Democratic party. so there's there's been some important and and very robust changes over time in how subgroups affiliate with the parties. Again, we've discussed that doesn't always translate into how an election bears out, but but those trends are are quite robust and continuing.
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned younger younger adults. Is that is that a function of religiosity or religious opinions, or what do you think from what you've seen?
1: Well, it's tough for us to get at causality with public opinion polls. But, but even with that, I don't think that we tend to think of religion as being the, the causal factor there. I mean, I think there's more evidence that it's over time, the Democratic Party taking positions on on a range of issues, whether it's college tuition, whether it's the climate, taking positions on issues that just line up with where Younger adults are politically, and so I think that that's more the if there is a causal factor, it has more to do with those dynamics than than religion per se. Not to say that re- religion has no role, but there, there's clearly quite an alignment in terms of the policies with with younger adults and and the Democratic Party.
0: Uh huh. I guess I'm, I'm mentioning it in the context that the 18 to 29 group, just as a cohort, the people who are in that age age group have become more secular oriented so let's say 18 to 29 year olds in the 70s versus 18 to 29 year olds in the 2010s the older cohort was was more religiously oriented
1: yes that's absolutely the case that the share of americans who are that identify as as practicing a religion is declining and that's driven largely by these generational issues with with millennials and and younger adults uh, writ large being substantially less likely to be religious, especially like affiliate with a particular religion than, than older Americans. It's a very robust, very profound trend that we're seeing.
0: All right. Well, thank you for that. This was a great conversation. I loved getting into the details with you, Courtney.
1: Yeah, me too. Thank you, Matthew. Appreciate it.
0: This is Theory of Change and i'm matthew sheffield be sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform we are on all of them apple Podcasts, google play soundcloud stitcher you name it and leave us reviews let us know how we're doing